take your Bibles and turn to the gospel according to Mark. Thank you, Scott. Mark chapter number one, as we, uh, I say continue, but really begin. I didn't get through the first half of the first verse last week. That was supposed to be where y'all laugh because that was kind of a joke, right? But no, that didn't work. (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah, last week we looked at the introduction and we talked about the life of Mark. um, And we talked about his family. We talked about his failure and how he was the one that deserted Barnabas and Paul on that first missionary journey. And we just talked about how many times uh, we could probably identify with Mark. We failed in our life. And um, so thankful that God used a failure to write one of the four accounts about his son's life. How about you? I'm thankful for that. That gives me hope. On a Monday morning when I feel like a failure, you know, they say that pastors feel most like a failure on a Monday morning. I don't know why that is, but feelings lie to you. Have you realized that? Feelings are a terrible judge of truth. Um, but anyway, uh, so we looked at Mark's life, and we looked at how he, he had failed the Lord on uh, many occasions, and God still used him. And uh, we talked about how we also need to be patient with those who have failed us. And, uh, and then we talked about Mark's focus. He, uh, Mark is an interesting book. We believe that it's the earliest book of the four gospel accounts. And Mark got right to the point. He was writing to primarily a Roman reader. He was actually writing from Rome. Mark was uh, what most scholars believe was Peter's personal apprentice, penman. Um, there is a reference in one of the epistles of Peter that, that seems to indicate that Mark had been led to Jesus by Peter. And so Mark wrote down the eyewitness account of Peter primarily because we see that Peter was the primary uh, character that Mark seems to um, highlight. And so we looked at the, uh, just some of the things that Mark highlights. He emphasizes action. So if you like a good action movie or action novel, there you go, action. He highlights events over the teachings of Jesus, although there are some of the teachings of Jesus in here. But certainly Matthew and Luke would have more. And so Mark highlights events that Jesus did, his actions. And then thirdly, the the people's reaction to Jesus. And so Mark, as you study the book of Mark with me, you're going to find out that, um, or you're going to see how people would respond. What's going on out in our driveway right now? Because I know that there's like a lot of distraction. Don't you just love a church with windows? Can I get an amen? I mean, you know, if you're not competing with the buck prancing across the field, by the way, uh, we, uh, we uh, had somebody down a, down a buck or a doe here, here a few weeks ago, but you have bucks or turkeys over here, turkeys inside, I'm just kidding, not, not, not turkey. actually we have ducks as well here, I, now I haven't seen the ducks for about a year, and then we have transit buses coming through a parking lot, so Try to focus here. You think it's hard for you to pay attention. It's hard for me because I'm very, oh, look, a squirrel. I mean, I'm very like that. So, uh, so people's reaction to Jesus, Mark highlights that. And then Jesus, uh, we see that he presents Jesus, the suffering servant king. And so last week we looked into the life of the writer of the gospel, Mark, and discovered that God used a failure to write one of the four accounts that we have about his son. We also discussed the unique perspective that Mark is going to give as we examine the life of our Lord and Savior. And what's the whole purpose of why we're doing this? Um, well, the question is, is how well do you know Jesus? 
How well do I think I know Jesus? And so if anything, a study of one of the four portraits of Jesus here in the New Testament is going to help us better know who he is so that we can better reflect who he is living in and through us. How familiar, how familiar are we of, of his life? And, and, and here's the question, can you and I know him better? Can we know him better? I, I know I came to church this morning saying, Lord, I want to know you better. I want to know your heart better. I want to keep my focus on you and understand who you are and, and, and what you've done for me and who I now get to be because of the gospel. And so as we grow in our understanding of him and of his life, here's what it should do. As we study the book of Mark, you know what it should do? It should stir your affection for Jesus. As you read this book, you should say, wow, oh, I want to love him more. I want to see him more in my life. I want to follow him with my life. Just like these men that we're going to study decided to lay down everything that they had put their trust and confidence in with their family businesses. And they were going to follow Jesus as his disciples with their life. And so from the very beginning of this study, what you're going to see today, and I cannot wait to preach this message. Because what you're going to see today is Mark's very enthusiastic desire to tell you about the life of this one and only servant king who changed the course of human history. And so let's break right into it. And the title of the message today is simply this, the gospel is, the gospel is, because right from the first verse, Mark says this, he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God. I want to give to you today five truths that I believe Mark brings out here in the text this morning, verses 1 through 13, that teach us what the gospel really is. And really, it's about the life of Jesus, as we're going to see. So write these five truths down, and we'll touch upon several things that I believe the Holy Spirit showed to me this week, and I hope it ministers to you. The first truth you want to write down is this. The gospel is, the gospel is centered upon a person. The gospel is centered upon a person. Notice what Mark says here. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel is centered upon a person. You know, there's a lot of confusion or maybe just the word gospel is very vague or ambiguous. What do I mean by that? Well, what does the word gospel mean? If you've been in church any length of time, you'll know that the word gospel means Good news, good tidings, joyous news. And yes, it certainly means that, a joyous message, good news, good tidings. But in Mark's day, in the first century, the word gospel had even a more specific meaning. It was actually used in both the Jewish and Roman culture or Gentile cultures of that time. And it specifically had a connection with the idea of the arrival of the king the arrival of the king. In fact, this word gospel was not foreign to the people in, in the first century and even to the Jew. In fact, in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word euangelion, which is the Greek word for gospel, euangelion, actually shows up on several occasions in the Old Testament. Listen to a couple of verses. Isaiah 40 verse 9, it says, O Zion, that bringest Good tidings, there's the word gospel, euangelion. Good tidings, get thee up into a high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. So the idea here is someone proclaiming good news. 
Um, I've, I've shared with you before, if you got good news today, you're going to go and you're going to share it. Now, you might not go to the middle of the town square and yell it at the top of your lungs like they would have done in the olden days, but you're going to put it on your Facebook wall in all caps. That's how we proclaim good news today, all caps on Facebook or in a text, right? When was the last time you were that excited about the gospel? It just so gripped your heart. Mark, I mean, as... As we read this young writer, and in fact, many believe that Mark was a younger man, and, and, and we tend to get that idea because he was go, 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 and, and he noticed some details about the life and the story of Jesus that maybe others wouldn't have recognized. But we see here in Isaiah 40, verse 9, this use of the word gospel. It says, behold your God. So again, the gospel is focused on a person, Isaiah 49. Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the, mount, upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, gospel, euangelion, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, here it is, thy God reigneth. Do you see that the gospel is not just information, it's not just advice, it's good news. It's the proclamation of a king that has arrived, and that's exactly what Mark is saying. And we're going to see how that every king who was coming into a town would have a herald, a forerunner, who proclaim that the king is coming. Prepare yourselves. Make way for the king is coming. This is the idea of gospel. And this word gospel is centered upon a person. So this word gospel is, it was a word used to describe the very best news possible to proclaim the ascent of the new king. So when you hear the word gospel, think about that. Think about the reality that this is about a person, a king who has come. Which brings me to this application as we meditate upon that, and that's this. The gospel is not just good information. I hope that you did not come to church today just for an information download into your brain. Now, I hope that you learn truth because truth sets free. Truth transforms your life. And it's so cool to see how truth is transforming people's lives out in our, out in our audience today, out in our congregation. I, I see you make posts about what God is showing you and what he's teaching. And I'm like, yes, there's the truth at work again. But it's not just information, right? It's not just information simply to know, nor is the gospel simply good advice for one to be busy about doing. No, primarily the gospel is good news about a person who has finished a work on our behalf. Amen. That's good. That's the truth because it's news. It's, it's the reality of what's been done and now how we get to live and our life is transformed. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that God's Son has stepped into human history, into the world that he created, and he has died for our sins, and he was raised from the grave conquering our greatest fears. It is the good news that our sins can be forgiven, that we can belong to the family of God and one day go to live with God in heaven. It is the announcement of victory. I'll say that again. It's the announcement of victory over sin, death, hell, and the grave. It is good news that we have been invited into the very circle of relationship with the triune God of 
all eternity, to experience unceasing joy and eternal life with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this was all made known and finally revealed. God had spoken at various times in sundrous ways in, in the Old Testament through the fathers and the prophets. But in these last days has he spoken unto us, by the ascent and the arrival of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The king who would first be the king of love and the king of salvation. And then, of course, to return as the king ruling over all, still the king of love and salvation, but the king who has finally finished and done with the curse, removed even any presence of sin. And so this is the gospel. So Mark really talks to us here in this first verse about the gospel being about a person. This is the beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, and here's what I want you to do. Every time you see the phrase Son of God or Jesus referencing, referencing himself between his, his Father and him as the Son, I want you to underline that in your Bible as we read it. Because here's what's really cool. Mark proclaims it here in the first verse and guess who the final person in the gospel of Mark is to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God? A Roman centurion. One who is standing at the cross and saw Jesus. And I love that bookend about this, uh, about this gospel. That Mark proclaims it and then an unrepentant, but evidently, hopefully, he, he, he didn't just recognize it with his head, but he saw it for what it was and he placed his faith in Jesus as the Son of God. Do you see that the gospel at its core, is centered upon a person. Number two, though, we see that the gospel was promised. The gospel was promised. Uh, look, look at verses two and three. Mark says here, as is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark here not only proclaims, and, and, and I told you last week that this first verse was the only verse where Mark tells you what he thinks. Because Mark is a believer, and he tells you that he believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But then he goes into this eyewitness account, and one of the first witnesses he uses is the Old Testament. And he quotes two verses that he kind of combines. He quotes Malachi 3 verse 1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3, if you want to jot those two references down. Malachi 3, 1, and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And what's interesting about this prophecy, this promise, is that this promise wasn't even directly connected to Jesus, although it was a prophecy about the one who would be the herald, the forerunner of Jesus. Which again goes back to this depth of meaning around the word gospel because the word gospel was tied to this idea of someone who was heralding the arrival of the king. And so Mark here quotes a passage from Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 4, 40 verse 3. And he says, Behold, I send my messenger, my herald, before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, which is interesting. Because when you read that, you're like, oh, wilderness, wilderness. Yeah, the Jews really understood what the wilderness was all about. And there's something there that we're going to come back to because John is in the wilderness. People came out to the wilderness to see John, to be baptized in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But you see that this gospel was promised. 
The Old Testament scriptures identified John the Baptist as the one who would be the one to prepare the way for the Lord. Thus, the Old Testament points to Jesus as the Son of God, the testimony of Scripture and of John and of the voice from heaven that we're going to look at here in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, all tell us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's the only Savior. And so the only way to understand this man that Mark writes about is to see him as the Son of God because he is the fulfillment of prophecy. Let me illustrate to you. There are over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament prophesying Jesus to come. Let me just share with you the fact that there's over 300, and even if we were just to say that he fulfilled nine, let's just say Jesus just fulfilled nine of the 300 prophecies. What would be the odds of any person in human history doing that? How many of you have ever been to the state of Texas? Raise your hand. Anybody? Anybody? Texas is a big old state. Can I get an amen? That's a big place. Just to try to illustrate the odds of one man even fulfilling nine of the 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. Talk about a promise that was fulfilled. Imagine you being given this task. You're to go to the state of Texas, and the state of Texas is covered in quarters. You know, like 25-cent pieces, quarters. It's covered in quarters a foot thick, the whole state of Texas, You've marked one of those quarters with a little smiley face on it and dropped it somewhere in the state of Texas. And you're tasked with one chance, one chance to pick up one of those quarters in the state of Texas and find the one that you drew, drew a little smiley face on. And oh yeah, by the way, you've got to do it one chance blindfolded. Those are the odds of Jesus Christ, of one man, fulfilling even nine of the 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Talk about a promise that was fulfilled. This gospel was promised. You know what that means? We can trust God. If God came through on that, God will come through in every area of our life. This gospel was promised, and that's what Mark is saying here. He's saying, listen, this gospel, it's centered upon a person. This gospel was promised by God in the Old Testament. And number three, this gospel involves preparation to receive. It involves a preparation to receive. As we mentioned here, Mark cites two quotations from the Old Testament prophets, Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 40, verse 3. And he says that this forerunner, John the Baptist, was going to be sent to prepare the way for God's Son. What you had in ancient times, and again, Mark's painting the picture here. In ancient times, before a king visited any part of his realm, a messenger was sent before him to prepare the way. This maybe would include preparing roads, but also preparing the people for how they were to respond. What we see here with John the Baptist is he was given this task of, look at the end of verse 3, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. What does that mean? I don't know about you, but I've read that over the years and wondered, what does that mean? Well, the next few verses give us an idea of what this means. Verse 4, John did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem and were baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. 
the gospel involves a preparation to receive. As you study this out, what you find is that everybody was coming out of the cities into the wilderness to hear this preacher who Jesus called the last prophet. Luke chapter 16, verse 16, it says that, that uh, up until John were the prophets. But then the kingdom of God has arisen and everybody is seeking to press into it. And so John was the last prophet. And what John's purpose was, was to bring the full weight of the law and sin upon the people so that they would see that they were sinners in need of a great physician, in need of Jesus Christ. What many scholars believe is that as the Jews were coming out to the wilderness, literally what they were saying through this baptism, there were, there were other ceremonial washings um, that the Jews would go through in their religion. But what many scholars believe is that as these Jewish people were getting baptized through the baptism of John, it was basically John laying the framework for everybody to truly see the fact that they were in need of the gospel. They were in need of a deliverer. They were in need of rescue. And what the Jew was basically saying through the baptism of John is this, catch this, I'm no better than a Gentile. See, there was a big separation between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. But what the Jew was doing through the baptism of John is they were humbling themselves and basically saying, I'm no better than a Gentile. I'm a sinner just like them. And I'm in need of the king. I'm in need of the Messiah. Now, of course, they were still trying to figure out what does this Messiah even mean? Is this a political Messiah? Is this, you know, they didn't understand all that yet. But what I want us to see here is that John was sent to prepare the way. And I believe what that means is, is that he was to prepare the way to get people to truly see their sin for what it was. By the way, I don't know if you know this. John wasn't the... Um, the nicest guy. <laughs> he told you like it is. He was rough. I mean, look at verse 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. I mean, this guy, I mean, Bear Grylls thinks he's cool. John the Baptist has got something on Bear Grylls. And how many of y'all know who Bear Grylls is? He's the survival guy that gets dropped out of a plane in the wilderness of Alaska and somehow survives. You know, he eats bugs and yeah. John was serious, and John was to the point. In fact, that's what got John killed, because he called out Herod's wife, and that was a no-no, and, and he was beheaded because of that. And so John was the last prophet. He was bringing the full weight of the law and the prophets upon the people so that they would see their need for a deliverer for a rescuer. That was John's job because he was to do that so that he could point people to the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. And so John, he was an interesting character. He was, he was out in the wilderness. That's where he lived. And um, many people say here in this verse, verse 6, that he was like Elijah the prophet, dwelling in the wilderness, depending upon God to take care of his needs. Uh, he didn't have much but what he did have, he had a voice. Look at verse 7. And he preached and he said, I love this. There is one coming who is mightier than I after me. The latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Oh, do you not see that? 
Do you not see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, yes, I'm the last prophet and the law and the prophets are great, but the law and prophets are subservient to the son because the son, Moses was a faithful servant in all his house, but the son, Hebrews chapter three, the son is the one who gets the glory. And so the law and the prophets point to Jesus. And I believe what John was saying here, yes, personally, he was saying he must increase and I must decrease. But I believe what also is being said here is, Make sure you don't get all of your theology just from John the Baptist or just from Sinai because there's a direction to the Bible and the direction takes us to Zion. It takes us to Calvary. It takes us to Jesus. And this is what John says. He says, listen, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming who will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Wow. A new covenant was going to be instituted a new and living way for access to the throne of God through the finished work of Jesus was going to be opened forever and always. And so John here, I believe these words are thick and rich with truth. Yes, John was humble in his understanding that he was simply the voice of the one who pointed the way. And oh yeah, by the way, may that always be our attitude. We're not God We shouldn't take that glory. It's not about us. It's about ever and always pointing back to him and saying, look at him. Isn't he a wonderful? Isn't he amazing? Isn't he good? Isn't he truthful? Isn't he just? Isn't he holy? And so this gospel involves a preparation. You see, many times people don't receive the good news because they haven't agreed with God first that there's bad news. They haven't confessed their sins. They haven't realized they're a sinner. Listen, in order for the gospel to be that breathtaking and that amazing, you got to understand your condition before you got saved. I mean, do we understand? I mean, I mean, I mean, if I got a call tomorrow saying, hey, you're healed of cancer, I'd be like, okay, great. I didn't have it to begin with. Okay. I mean, I'm, I mean, that's great for somebody down the road. Oh yeah, you found the cure, but I don't have it. It'd be completely different if I had stage four cancer and someone called me tomorrow and said, there is a cure and you're going to get access to it. You better believe all caps on Facebook. Yes, or wherever. (laughs) You're going to hear about that good news. So what John was doing is he was trying to get people to see that they were bad news. For them to see that they needed a deliverer, that they could not earn their righteousness by their own strength. And this is why even the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to see what John was doing, but they weren't going to be, they weren't going to have the baptism of repentance. This gospel is centered upon a person. This gospel was promised. This gospel involves a preparation to receive. And we see Mark laying this out here. Fourthly, we see the gospel involves an invitation into genuine relationship. Oh, this is so good. Look at verses 9 through 11. I see the baptism of Jesus here. It says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. Oh, by the way, Several scholars say that that is approximately the same location where the children of Israel crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Just a tidbit to think about. Um, So he's baptized here in the Jordan, verses 10 and 11. And straightway, notice this, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This gospel involves an invitation into a genuine relationship. 
Notice what is pictured here. You have Jesus, the Son of God. You have God the Father, the voice from heaven. And you have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Why do you think that John used that language, or John, Mark, used that language? For the Spirit of God to be pictured as a dove is not particularly striking to us. But when Mark was writing, it was very rare. In the sacred writings of Judaism, there is only one place where the Spirit of God is likened to a dove in all of their writings. In the Targums, which is, a, which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that the Jews of Mark time would have been reading. In the creation account, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. But the Hebrew verb there for hovered meant to flutter. The Spirit fluttered over the face of the waters. To capture this vivid image, the rabbis in that time period translated the passage for the Targums like this. Are you ready to read it? And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke and said, let there be light. What is Mark doing? I believe that he is trying to point out a reality here. That there were three parties active in the creation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They were all present. And through them, and ultimately through Jesus, because Colossians says that by him all things consist. And so through the Father, Son, and the Spirit, they were active in the creation of the world. But the same three parties are present here at Jesus' baptism. The Father, who is the voice. The Son, who is the Word incarnate in flesh. And the Spirit fluttering like a dove. One scholar said it like this. Tim Keller said it like this. He said, Mark is deliberately pointing us back to the creation through the very beginning of history. Just as the original creation of the world was a project of the triune God, Mark says, so the redemption of the world, the rescue and renewal of all things that is beginning now with the arrival of the king is also a project of the triune God, which tells us this. That if God is a relationship, guess who he wants a relationship with? With you and with me. He desires this. When Jesus came out of the water, the Father enveloped him with his words of love by saying, You are my son, who I am well pleased. And the Spirit covered him with power. And we see that this dynamic uh, cosmic drama, so to speak, um, C.S. Lewis referred to it as the dance of the Trinity how they're always uh, uh, lavishing love upon one another, how they're always encircling one another. Of course, God the Father, Son, and the Spirit to see how they're always focusing on one another. This, the, this idea of others, which challenges us to think about what this gospel really is. It, it's not just a information to know. It's not just advice to do. But primarily, it's an invitation into a relationship with this triune God of all creation. Which means that we were made to center everything in our life on God. To think of everything in terms of our relationship to God. So let me ask you, this week, did you go through this week thinking of everything in your life connecting back to the source? Everything in your life connected to relationship with God walking in that relationship with God. You see, we were made to glorify God. 
What does it mean to glorify God? Um, you glorify something when you find it beautiful for what it is in itself. Its beauty compels you to adore it or to have your imagination captured by it. That's the idea of glorying in something. It's not you looking at that object and seeing how it can serve your needs, like, like, like it's a means to an end. Do you know that's how many people treat God in other religion? In dead religion that man, where, where, where the focus is on man and his uh, attempts to try to do enough for God, the idea is God's this, this uh, totem. He's this good luck charm. He, he, he's the one that gets you out of bad, bad situations. He's this genie that, that we have. So, so God's really not the God that we glory in. He's just the God that we're glad he's there when we need him. But I think what we see here in this picture of the Trinity is the idea that there is a much deeper relationship than all of us can even imagine. That we are to glory in God as the end of it in and of itself. He is the end. He's not the means to an end. Let me illustrate this. This is going to come as a shock to my family. I'm not, giving, I'm, I'm not using y'all in any illustration this morning. Aren't you glad? I'm telling a story. I'm, I'm, I'm telling a truth about me. There was a time when I was in college that I did not like classical music. Can I get a witness? Anybody in here not a fan of Beethoven, Bach, Mozart, or any of the others? Yeah, I was not a fan of classical music in college. But you know what? I had to go to these things called fine artist series because if I didn't, I would get demerits. Yeah, I went to one of them schools where you, had to, where you got demerits if you didn't go. So in order to not get kicked out and in order to get good grades, I put up with music that I did not necessarily enjoy. But guess what we just did, though, on our vacation? Now, I'm so thankful for how God provided all this because I would not normally do this, but I was so glad to be able to do it. We spent over $700 on tickets to the New York Symphony. And you know what? It was one of the most amazing events that I've ever been to in my life. Because I've realized in being married to this lovely lady over here for 17 or 18, going on 18. We're 40 this year, by the way. Pray for us. Um, she has helped me develop a love for classical music. And of course, my three kids, you know, woo, you know, violins, cellos, guitars, all that. There's probably not a second in our house during the day that there's not somebody practicing. And so even on my day off, I'm like, okay, get out of the house for a while. But, but it's like I've grown up, and now what I realize, and catch this, here's what glory means. I now love to sit down and listen to a beautiful symphony for the very enjoyment of it. I'm no longer using classical music to not get demerits or get a good grade through a music appreciation class in, in, in college. I'm now paying my own money to go and enjoy something for the very fact that it's beautiful. Why are we here this morning worshiping God? Are we here as a means to an end? Or are we here to say, you are the end in and of yourself? Let me tell you this, you will never be at rest in life Till you get there. You'll always be searching. And yeah, you'll try to use God as a means to an end. You'll use another person as a means to an end. And you'll always be searching because here's the reality. You were made 
to find him as your end. And we see here in this revelation, just a quick glimpse into the Trinity, this idea that God is inviting us into a relationship that we continue to unpack and we continue to see greater and greater truth as we dive deep into his matchless grace. And so this gospel, it involves an invitation into a genuine relationship It involves a preparation to receive. It was something that was promised by the prophets. And this gospel centered upon a person. But finally, I want you to see this gospel will be tested and resisted. Um, What's so interesting to me is how Mark writes this first half of chapter 1. You know, he starts off right away. Again, he doesn't mention a genealogy. He doesn't mention the birth. He is right into the prophecy about John the Baptist, the forerunner. And he tells you about John the Baptist a little bit. And then he's right into the baptism. And then he's right in to the temptation. I find this interesting. Notice how verse 11 ends. It says, There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, just a couple of details here. Number one, this was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he had done anything, which tells us that there was something deeper to the fact that Jesus pleased the Father than just the fact that he was doing what he was doing, although he came to do his Father's will. But there's an identity that's deep at the reality of who Jesus is that goes far, far beyond just what he did on the outward. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But then notice, and immediately, you're going to see that word 41 times. If you want to count them as we go through the scripture, that's number one, I think. Yeah, 41 times you'll see that word. Immediately, he was driven, this is interesting, by the Spirit into the wilderness. What's going on here? Well, it says he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered unto him. We know from other gospel accounts that Jesus faced three temptations. Let me ask you a question. What did Satan, how did Satan come at Jesus? What was his accusation? What was his question? You know, Mark is putting this here because he's trying to get us to think about creation with the Trinity, where the Trinity was at creation, the Trinity was at the beginning of the story of redemption unfolding. But then he tells you about the temptation. Why? Because there was another temptation in a garden at the very beginning of human history. And Satan was putting questions out there, accusations. And what was the accusation? What was the temptation? What was the uh, question about God's character and goodness back in the garden? And what was going to be the accusation that Satan was going to give to Jesus in the wilderness? If thou be the Son of God. He attacked Jesus at the core level of his identity. Now catch this. He did that with Adam and Eve too. By telling them that they weren't enough. That if they just had this tree, they could be like God. They were lacking in their identity. The primary way that Satan will always come at you. And sometimes you got to peel back the layers of distraction. It's at the core level of your identity of who you are in Christ. Why do you think, friend, we have so much confusion today over basic identity? It's because the enemy has been at work from the very beginning attacking people at that very core level. 
And what Satan did to Jesus, he said, if thou be the son of God, which you have to question yourself. Okay, why would that be a temptation for Jesus? Well, this is the mystery of the hypostatic union, 100% God, 100% man. We don't know how that was, but it was. It was a temptation. It was a struggle. And Jesus was challenged. Am I going to believe what I just heard from heaven? Am I going to believe that I am the beloved son of God and in him I am, I am well-pleasing to him? So do you see that the power for Jesus to say no to Satan's temptations was found in the word of God, which he quoted, but I would, re- I would argue it was also found in even a more immediate word from God he had just heard from heaven. Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So if you're a believer in Jesus, guess what? You're in Christ. You've been imputed the righteousness of Jesus. And so guess what that means? You are God's beloved child in Christ you are well-pleasing to him. And when you truly start to believe that and let that work through every part of your life and you go and you face temptation, you start to identify, you start to identify the voice of the accuser a lot more clearly because now you have a filter and you're able to say, oh, no, 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 no. No, that's not my identity, Satan. I don't need that to make my identity complete. The Bible says I'm complete in him. I've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear because I know who I am. You see, people have forgotten. Christians have forgotten. They were purged from their old sins. They've forgotten their identity. And Jesus would go his entire life with Satan, continuing this accusation. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, I think he was probably struggling with it. You know, are you the son of God? Maybe you've just, you know, maybe you just convinced yourself. He's probably playing mind games because that's what Satan loves to do. He loves to twist your mind. And he creates a whole industry around that. And so this gospel, listen, if Jesus was tested and resisted, those who are believers in his gospel will be tested and resisted. It won't be easy. It won't be easy for us to go and say, I am a child of God and in Jesus Christ, I am well-pleasing to him because that sounds almost prideful, but it's not. It's very humble because I realize when I look in the mirror every day and when I do actions that betray that identity and my heart grieves because I've got a new heart and the spirit of God lives inside of me, I know that there's something different, but yet people are going to resist that. It's going to be tested. It's going to be resisted. And here's what's interesting. There was a five-fold witness here to Jesus being the Son of God. Mark witnessed that Jesus was the Son of God. The prophets witnessed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John the Baptist witnessed and said that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Uh, The Father and the Spirit identify that Jesus is the Son of God. And guess what? Even the forces of evil in this book. And I love this book because specifically in this book, you have several occasions where Jesus encounters demons and they say, Leave us alone. What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of God? So even the forces of evil witness that Jesus is the son of God. Let me give you some closing questions as we think about all these truths here. What what a powerfully packed portion of scripture for us to meditate upon this week. A few questions. Number one, is your life centered upon the right person? We talked about that in the first truth this morning. The gospel is centered upon a person. 
It's not about just a body of dry truth. It's, it's about a living person. So is your life centered upon the right person? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Number two, does knowing that God has fulfilled his promises in Christ also bring comfort to your life that his promises will be fulfilled in your life? Every time I look at prophecy and I see it fulfilled, I'm, I'm reminded, God, you've also given me promises. And you say in Corinthians that in Christ, these promises are yea and amen. They're true. They're going to be fulfilled. He which hath begun a good work in you will, not perform, will, will perform it. He will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. God will not give up on you. Number three, perhaps today you see how God has prepared you for this moment to behold Christ and receive him today as your Savior as the savior of your life. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? If you don't, today is the day that you can trust Christ. He can become your king. You can walk with him. You can have a deep and vibrant relationship with him. Is there anything the gospel involves? If there's anything it involves, it involves a deep and personal relationship with the triune God of all creation. Do you see that at the center of this relationship? is the confidence that in Christ, he is well pleased with you, not because of what you've done or not done, but because you've placed your faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder than that diligently seek him. So it's nothing that we do in and of ourselves, it's what Christ did. So in Christ, we also hear those words, thou art my beloved child, in Christ, I am well pleased with you because it's only in going with that source, the only way to face temptation successfully is in knowing who you truly are and living from that identity and resting in that relationship. If there's anything that's a mission of our church, it's to help one another grow in grace as we've received his grace to then grow, understanding what our identity as a child of God is. You know, there's things today that perhaps you're doing to your body, you're doing to your soul, and they betray the identity of who you are as a child of God. You know what we need to stop doing? We need to stop thinking we're a lowly worm. We've been metamorphosized. We've been transformed. The Bible says we're a new creature. You know what you are? You're a butterfly. You're meant to fly. But if you keep on believing in half-baked worm theology that sounds humble, but doesn't include the gospel in it, then no wonder. Yeah, we think we're worms. We're going to go crawl in the mud again. You see, the gospel says something has absolutely changed at your core. Will we believe it? Oh, may we believe it today. Let's